You're listening to the Douglas Shikoe Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas is beginning a new series called Messianic Judaism, sharing a lesson entitled Jesus Fulfilled the Law. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. This is Messianic Judaism 4. Jesus fulfills the law. The question we'll be asking is, how does he fulfill the law and the prophets? We've been discussing Matthew 5, uh, verse 17 and following, a key text for the Messianic Jewish movement. That's where Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I'd like us to think about foundation and extension. Building on something is not so much a rejection of the foundation, if you're building on a foundation, as a a fulfillment. You know, Paul spoke of the period before Christ, this is in his letter to the Galatians, as a time of childhood and immaturity. He says that it was an elementary education, it was a preparation until we became mature. That's in Galatians 3. Think of when you were a little boy or girl and you were learning arithmetic. It was all about numbers, and at the beginning, it was one-digit numbers. Some years later, you learned algebra. And now, what is this? They're using letters like A and B and X and Y. I didn't know that they used letters. I thought it was just numbers. I mean, you could say they tricked me, but they didn't because algebra builds on arithmetic. And if you keep going, a few years later, you're doing calculus. And engineers and others can build some really cool things. It's not so much that calculus, uh, certainly it would be false to say that it, that it somehow abolishes arithmetic and algebra, but let's say it incorporates what it needs to into a better system. The same going from classical to quantum physics. Or think of the space program. The Apollo program that put people on the moon was not intended to obliterate Mercury and Gemini. Those are the, the previous uh, programs that put a man in space and that where they had the spacewalk. In fact, the technology of later the International Space Station was inconceivably greater than the relatively low-tech Apollo program. It's not a question of abolishing, although I guess from one perspective you could look at it that way, but it's fulfillment, it's foundation and extension. The New Testament, of course, builds on the foundation of the Old Testament. In the words of scholar Bernard Ram, the law was proper as far as it went but it did not go far enough. It taught a basic morality to the children of Israel, but our Lord invites us to a higher plane in the Sermon on the Mount. No mere abstinence from killing will do. We must come up to the full measure of love. The law of Mount Sinai taught a necessary but elementary morality. The Sermon on the Mount explains and develops this morality to its wider and fuller meaning. Well, so to the question, how did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, as I've said before, we need to look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and look at the kinds of things that he emphasizes. And by the way, of course, he didn't come anyway uh, to get rid of these regulations immediately because Judaism is still in effect. Remember, the Old Covenant is not totally displaced. 
until the new covenant comes uh, with the death of Christ, Hebrews 9, till the day of Pentecost. Well, when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see 14 passages where there are fulfillment formulae. And that is, it'll say, the prophet said this, or this happened according to this prophet. Every single fulfillment formula is referring to the prophets, never to the Torah itself, never to uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just to the prophets, which is uh, quite interesting. Because the prophets, although they called Israel to obey the law, they constantly focused on justice and mercy and faithfulness, the very things that Jesus focuses on in Matthew 23, 23, or the very end of Matthew 22. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the Lord says in Hosea. So I think that's a hint for us uh, that fulfilling a law is not the same as upholding every one of its hundreds of rules. Jesus fulfills the law in the way that the prophets foretold. The prophets said that God would initiate a new covenant and create a new people. There would be a new kind of obedience and a new order. Hebrews 9.10, referring to some parts of the Torah, says, They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So, after Jesus, there's a change in the new covenant. Many of these details and regulations change. So, the Lord embodies the law, and his teaching embodies the deeper meaning of the law and the prophets. In Jesus, the heart of Torah lives in its original pure purpose. Now, uh, I'm going to give you, we're going to run through a number of different areas that support this thesis, and some of the categories may overlap with one another. I'm paint, painting a picture more than trying to do a talk in analytic theology. I hope you'll thank me for that. <laughs> so when we say that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, we don't mean just that he's born in Bethlehem, or executed even though he was innocent. Isaiah 53, Micah 5. It's so much more. Fulfillment is not just, here's a one-sentence prediction, and here it is fulfilled. Fulfillment is so much broader than that. Well, it's not just verses being fulfilled and predictions. It's whole institutions. So first, I'd like to emphasize that Jesus is the triple anointed, the triple Messiah. Now, Christ is English for Christos, which is Greek for Mashiach, which is Hebrew, for Messiah, which means the anointed one. Okay, he's the triple Messiah. How do I mean? Because in the Old Testament, the priests were anointed. Think of the high priest. This is pictured in Psalm 133, but we can read about it at the end of Exodus. The high priest is majestic. Now think of Jesus. He's more than just uh, uh, dressed in honor and a go-between between God and us, because he is God. But as a high priest, Jesus is majestic, compassionate, sinless, bridging the gulf between God and man. All the laws related to the priesthood have been fulfilled, right? He's our high priest. High priests were anointed. Jesus is the anointed. He's the Christ. He's also the Christ as the king because kings were anointed. The righteous king, the king of kings and lord of lords, promoting justice, ruling compassionately, wisely, and firmly. We no longer need an earthly monarch since we have a heavenly king. All the laws related to the kingship have been fulfilled. And then a prophet, because we'll also see prophets anointed. As a prophet, Jesus spoke the truth. He called God's people to obey him and to follow closely. 
and not to get lost uh, in the details, but make the main thing the main thing. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Jesus is described as all three of those. He's described as a prophet, not just in Luke 24, but in uh, Hebrews, he's described as a prophet and a, and a king and a high priest. So think about that if you haven't. The anointed, triply anointed. A second area is what's called typology. Typology is the doctrine of symbols and types. I'm quoting again from Bernard Ram. It is the doctrine of symbols and types, the doctrine that persons and things in the New Testament, and especially the person and work of Christ, are symbolized or prefigured by persons and things in the Old Testament. So it's that whole thing of type and anti-type, uh, foreshadow and so forth. Uh, sometimes that typology involves offices, like priest, king, prophet, or should I say the, pre- the prophethood, the kingship, and priesthood. But it can also work with persons. In Romans 5, we see that Adam is a type of Christ. I know it sounds funny because it sounds like, oh, there are multiple types. Here's the Adam type. That's not the way it's used. And if you're confused on this, uh, I would encourage you to do a little bit of extra study. Type and anti-type. It's like in 1 Peter 3, it says that the uh, water of baptism is the anti-type of the water of the flood, which was the type. Okay. Um Abraham is a type of those who have faith, Romans 4. Joseph is a type of Christ. He's been rejected by his kinsmen, though he graciously forgives, understanding divine sovereignty. God rescues the people through him. David is king. As a king, he's a type of Christ. Solomon is a chosen son, Zerubbabel. Think of the uh, king who worked along with Joshua in the book of Zechariah, Um, the head of a new society. Offices, persons, even institutions, all the sacrifices are types of Christ. Things, the tabernacle, which is how God manifested his presence uh, in the desert generation and even uh, at Shiloh in the earlier days before Solomon built the temple. So you have the tabernacle, the temple, which uh, are God living among us. And that points, of course, to the ultimate temple, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Even events. Consider, for example, in Numbers uh, 21, when the serpent is lifted up. This is referred to in John 3, right before the famous verse 16. That lifting up of the serpent, that also serves as a type of Christ. The wilderness wanderings are types for our benefits. 1 Corinthians 10 gives four examples, four sins to avoid. He says all these things uh, were written down basically for our benefit, so we could take warning and, and make it. Shadows prefigure the reality in Christ. And we're going to return to that thought in our final chat in this series. So we've talked about the triple anointed, mentioned typology, and that investigates again the correlations, hints uh, uh, between between the testaments. How about feasts and holy times? Did you know that all the feasts and holy times point towards Jesus? You had spring feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, we call it usually Pentecost. These are all focused more on his first coming than his second coming. In the autumn, we have the Feast of Trumpets. Some see a, a connection with the last trumpet, that is the Judgment Day. I'm not so sure. Um, I don't know how you would prove that. You have also Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is associated with Jesus's first coming, of course. Um, tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, where, where they spent a week in booths. Uh, this is called Sukkot. Not only not only points towards the incarnation, but Jesus is the Lord's presence now with us and his ultimate dwelling with us, Revelation 
Oh, the Messianics will often say that the spring feasts point to his first coming and the autumn feasts point to his second coming. Well, they're right. There are many connections, but this is oversimplification and in several of those instances actually false. Christ has revealed and fulfilled the deep meaning of all these observances. Even think about uh, Sabbath year and Sabbath and Jubilee year. Uh, we no longer need to keep these festivals and observances because they've been fulfilled in Christ. Fourthly, obedience. I'd like to talk about the two sons. Maybe you're thinking of the parable in Matthew. One son told his father, I'll obey, but he didn't. The other said, no way, and then he did. Well, this is a little bit different. In Exodus 4.22, God says that Israel, his people, are his son. Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, conveying God's wish that he let the people go. Um, the people are his firstborn son. So Israel is God's son, corporately. You say, well, all, all of them? Well, it, obviously some people were saved, some were not in a right relationship with God, but he was uh, their father. Um, Israel was his son. Just as in the New Testament, think of the bride of Christ. We, If we're in the church, we're part of the bride. All of us, women? Well, yeah, it's an analogy, okay? Get used to it. We're the feminine. We're the, we're the bride, and Christ is the groom. But this is a strong theme in the Bible, that Israel is God's son. And without understanding that, it will be quite difficult to, to see what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are talking about. It's a huge theme. So what's the parallel? How do we develop this a bit? Well, we know that the people of Israel were ultimately enslaved in Egypt. They cried out. God raised up Moses at some point. They left. That is what an exodus means. It's a departing, a going out. And they go through the Red Sea. Uh, they, uh, they're in the desert. They're tested uh, 40 years. They don't do so well. Some are obedient, but majority are not. Sorry, that's a big theme in the Old Testament. And Israel, in a sense, illustrates what we should not do. What does Jesus do? Well, he also is God's son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In Matthew 2.15, Matthew points this out, that Jesus, too, was in Egypt. Well, that was when he was in danger of being killed by Herod the Great or his agents. Jesus is rescued, well, along with his parents, of course. Uh, they leave Egypt. Uh, what else happens with Jesus? Well, he goes through the water. This refers to his baptism, like in Matthew 4. And then after that, there's testing in the desert for 40, not years, not necessary in his case, just 40 days. But Jesus, unlike Israel, passes the test. He's obedient. Illustrate, Israel illustrates what not to do. Jesus illustrates what to do. And through Jesus, there's a new exodus, a new departure from Egypt, just as there's a new return from Babylon, from captivity. But there's a new exodus, a new covenant, and a new law. Explore those themes, because that's all bound up with how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Of course, perfect love of God and neighbor, the very heart of the law, the best understanding of Jesus's intent when he talks about the law being fulfilled. Look, how, look at how he fulfills the law in himself, and how he teaches us to do the same. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the verse that's often called the golden rule. But let's listen to this, Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up 
the law and the prophets. Okay, five things we've looked at, uh, ways in which Jesus fulfills the law. And that's why Paul says Christ is the end of the law. Romans 9.4, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Uh, the end, the telos. Not, telos doesn't mean the end as in it's over. It means the purpose, as in the phrase, to what end? Or do the means justify the end? The NIV, uh, as it typically does, it paraphrases. It says Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But technically, it's that word end. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to read Torah as Christians. The law of Moses is not God's law for us, but it's still God's word for us, and we need to know it. And that'll only help us appreciate Jesus more. It's not fair when often messianics will tell everyone else they tell us that we're Marcionites. Okay, Marcion was a Christian leader who kind of went off the rails in the, this is in the second century, uh, in the 140s, as I recall. He believed that the Old Testament God was not worthy of worship, and he didn't really care for the Old Testament or the law. He liked the New Testament, especially he liked Paul, because he imagined uh, that uh, Paul was rescuing Christianity from, well, what would have been awful if it had been Jewish in any way. Of course, this is crazy. Look look what Marcion does. He, he says, the Old Testament is not our scripture. In the New Testament, he whittles away anything he doesn't approve of. So Matthew's way too Jewish a gospel. That so is John and and. Mark, yeah, no, no, we're not. We're only going to use Luke because Luke is written by a non-Jew. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, as far as we know. He wrote one quarter of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. So Marcion allows Luke after he edits it, and then ten of Paul's thirteen letters, although he heavily edits them. Well, that's just unfair to say that we are Marcionites. Oh, by the way, and he was quite popular in the second century. In our time, many people think the Old Testament God is a different God, but that's a failure of imagination and a th failure of theology and a failure to really read the Old Testament. It's unfair to say that we're Marcionites because we don't disparage the Old Testament. So Christ brings the law to an end in the sense that arithmetic is brought to an end. We build on that as we go forward into algebra and geometry and so forth. He terminates the law but he doesn't ignore it. He establishes the new covenant through his blood. Okay, it's time to wrap up, although this will be a beefy conclusion. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He perfectly obeyed, not only observing the letter, but also the spirit of the law. That's its intent. And he teaches you and me to follow that spirit of the law also. In inaugurating a new priesthood, a heavenly priesthood, he brought about a change in the law. We saw that earlier in Hebrews 7. We're no longer required to observe the law of Moses with its animal sacrifices, festivals, criminal law, jubilee and Sabbath regulations, uh, distinctions between clean and unclean foods, rules regarding mildew, skin diseases, having to go to Jerusalem three times a year on pilgrimage if we're men, etc. No. It's also been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled along the prophets uh, in his being the Messiah. The Messiah is not just he fulfilled a few scriptures that said the Messiah would come. 
He's fulfilling the entire institution of the monarchy and prophethood and kingship. We see fulfillment in typology, in the holy times and feasts, in his perfect love, and in his accomplishing what Israel failed to do, that is to live in obedience to his father. No wonder Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus road, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Do not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is exciting stuff. If we're students of the Old Testament, we're able to do the same because Jesus is there. They react. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road or opened the scriptures to us? Then on another occasion, he says to the disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So when we ask, uh, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Really, he fulfills the law and the prophets. When we ask that, we have to uh, really have a very broad brush um, approach as we describe, as we take it all in. We need to think sweepingly, uh, you know, looking at the entire um, spectrum of Scripture. This, of course, underlines a challenge for us to plumb the depths of the Old Testament, the very thing that the Hebrew writer was eager for us to do. And studying these passages will strengthen our faith, and it'll also expand our perspective on who Christ is, his nature, his purpose, his glory. Those messianic passages are certainly more easily understood looking backward from the perspective of Calvary than they are looking forward, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Jesus came not to reject the law, nor to just give us some updates. Here's some information. Let's add a few codicils to the law. Not at all. He came to transform the whole system and to transform how we relate to God. Because Jesus Christ is the end of the law, because he fulfills the law in the way the prophets foretold, bringing about a new covenant, a new people, a new order. And our fifth talk, we'll be looking at the question, is the old covenant for today? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Messianic Judaism. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.